Ozempic, Wagovi, and Manjaro. Expensive drugs used for weight loss that are becoming more popular with people, <laughs> but not so popular with employers who cover their health insurance. There are mostly German um, people doing their defending their dissertations when body fat becomes a hot topic. And a, I would say a dozen or so um, dissertations come out of Leipzig and Halle and u universities um, where people start to explain why people are fat, not only using very non-humoral terms, they're using mechanical terms. And said that, well, this is a matter of the saponins in your body. Some people do not have the ability to break down the fat so they're flushed out of the body. So he recommended that people eat soap. And the soap would be, you know, the lie would dissolve the fat in their body. <laughs> like, like, what the hell? So, did he, so did he get like, sued? I mean, losses weren't know, that big. The 18th century. This is before yeah, yeah. George Shaney is the, is the most famous of these in England who um, promoted a milk and seed diet. And he himself was over 450 pounds. And what was food like in Europe before all these spices came to it? Was it just all bland? Well, I think you kind of have it backwards. Um, the oh. spices, the way that they categorized foods was that if it was sweet, it was hot and moist, meaning nutritious, good for you. Sugar is uh, the best thing you could eat. It's the most nutritious, healthy <laughs> food you could possibly get your hands on. Excessive nutrients didn't congeal as fat in your body. It turned into sperm in men and women. <laughs> this is bizarre. So and that signals your libido. So, so you have to be very careful during Lent and on fasting days that you cannot eat meat. This is the whole logic of it. Oh, because boy. then you're going to get aroused and you know, you're going to be inclined to sin. So, so the whole. I'll remember that next time I have a burger. Okay. I would say that humoral medicine does not have a concept of clinical obesity. They generally think that people, some people are bigger, some are smaller, and that depends on their internal heat. And, and it, there's nothing aberrant about it. It's not a pathology. It's just a body type. Did you know that our perspective with body weight has flipped? Entirely so. You see, in human history, those who were fat were those who could afford to eat well. So weight was actually a sign of wealth and status. But later, starting in about the 18th century, this perspective began to change. There are stories of fat people being gawked at. They were pointed at so that people could feel morally superior to them for supposedly being weak and not being disciplined enough to eat less and eat right. Hey there, news peelers. Today is August 11th, 2023, and this is Adele your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. 
I go on two to three long walks a week. It's a pretty routine affair. I walk down a steep hill close to our house and then walk back up. <laughs> That's all there is to it. On a recent day, my routine unexpectedly changed. Two things happened. First, for whatever reason, I decided that on that day, I would walk backward up the hill. While this gave me a much better view of the area around me, it also made me walk much harder. It was now a full-blown exercise session and I was sweating. The second thing that happened on that day was that I happened to listen to a Wall Street Journal podcast about Ozempic, Wagovi, and Manjaro. These drugs were initially approved for diabetes, but then a beneficial side effect was discovered, weight loss. Ozempic and Wigovi are both by Nova Nordisk. Ozempic was approved for type 2 diabetes and Wigovi for weight loss. And Manjaro is by Eli Lilly. It's approved for diabetes. Patients self-administer these drugs by poking themselves in the abdomen with injection pins. That's why some people are calling them the skinny pin. They have the effect of suppressing appetite and they help you slow down the emptying of your stomach. People taking these drugs lose up to 22% of their body weight. Anyway, my unexpected exercise combined with the Wall Street Journal podcast piqued my curiosity about these drugs. So when I got home, I researched these drugs and learned some interesting facts. First, the anti-obesity drug market is huge. It's projected to reach $77 billion worldwide by the year 2030. Second, because the drugs are approved, doctors can legally prescribe them at their own discretion. And sometimes these drugs are prescribed to people that don't meet the criteria for them. Third, and get this, <laughs> there are ads on social media that say you don't need to diet or exercise. Just take these weight loss drugs. Really? So I didn't need to walk up the hill? And what about the healthy protein shake I had afterward? Fourth, based on current research, it seems like to keep the weight off, you have to take these drugs forever. But forever won't work for everyone. Let's put aside the more serious side effects, such as nausea, stomach pain, constipation, diarrhea, and vomiting. That's the list from Ozempic, by the way. Even if you don't suffer these awful side effects, there's the cost. According to the Wall Street Journal, Ozempic can cost upwards of $1,350 a month. And so many people are using these drugs for weight loss that some big employees have started cutting off coverage for them. This is happening as more health plans agree to cover these drugs for weight loss, since research suggests that obesity is a disease rather than a lifestyle choice. This made me wonder, in the old days, how was obesity perceived? How was being overweight perceived? And here's something else. Recently, the Wall Street Journal published a report with this eye-opening headline. Quote, Ozempic can make you thin, not necessarily healthy. Unquote. The article admonished that you can't just take these drugs and be on your merry way to weight loss. No, you also have to eat right to stay healthy. This made me wonder, what was food like in centuries past? What did it mean to eat right in history? Believe it or not, there's a book titled Eating Right in the Renaissance, and the author of this book, Dr. Ken Albala, is my guest for this episode, during which we'll talk about his other books as well, like his book titled Cooking in Europe, 1250 to 1650. Dr. Albala is a professor of history at the University of the Pacific, 
and in the last 25 years or so, has written or edited more than 25 books. It's a long list, which you can read about by going to the detailed caption of this episode, where I have provided links to Dr. Al Bala's academic and personal homepages. By the way, as you've noted in my podcast program, I don't often talk about the personal lives of my guests. After all, this is the history behind news. But in this case, I couldn't help but ask Dr. Al Bala, how did he get into this field to research and write about food and to test different recipes from history? It's a dream career. Fun and fantastic scholarship. So, stay with me as Dr. Al Bala and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Albala, it's a pleasure to have you in our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. I want to start our conversation with your book that is titled Eating Right in the Renaissance because I read the following in a review of the book. Quote, Renaissance Europe had its own flourishing tradition of dietary advice. Then, as now, an industry of expert turnout diet books for an eager and concerned public. End quote. So my question is this, really? Dieting was a thing in history? Well, dieting did not mean originally weight loss diet. That's only one kind of diet. This was the things you should eat to stay healthy according to your particular constitution, which they categorized in four different classes, meaning you were born sanguine, which means you had a lot of blood in your body. Um, And that meant you were ruddy and strong and generally cheerful. Or you were phlegmatic, which means you're lazy and soft and you have watery humors, cold and moist humors. Or you were choleric, which meant that you are prone to anger and outbursts and your blood is you're hot and dry. Or you were a melancholic, which means that you are sad and you have cold and dry humors that predominate. So these four types. That, you know, those sound more psychological than constitutional. Absolutely are, but they're also physiological body types, which determine what kind of food you should eat, um, what kind of correctives you should do to bring your body back into humoral balance. And the idea was that if you are, let's say, hot-blooded, if you're choleric, you should eat things that are cold and moist, that are going to bring you into what the Greeks called eukrasia, or good humor, um, meaning that you'd be balanced. Um, and, And in fact, we still use sort of humoral logic when we describe something, let's say a martini as dry. It's not dry, it's liquid, obviously, but the effect <laughs> of it has on your body, it's a pairing, yeah. so it kind of dries out your taste buds, makes them smack like tannins, right? And when we say something is hot, meaning spicy, it's not hot temperature-wise, it's hot because it has that effect on your body. It heats you up. So, so there's still weirdly a humoral logic in much of the stuff that we just common parlance, really. Um, so, But to address the other part of your question, was this a flourishing industry? So I looked, this was actually my doctoral dissertation. So I actually oh, wrote wonderful. most of that before 1993. <laughs> um, and <laughs> the um, in terms of how much was actually published, I looked at the stuff between 1450 and 1650, and there are about 120 books that are just on this, what to eat, uh, how to stay healthy, you know, um, based on this humoral logic. So that's a lot. And I just followed from the beginning of printing until, um, until other systems start to appear. Um, that's mid 17th century. 
Okay, let's go back and address some of these things that you said. First, correctives. Define that term for me, please. What does that mean? So this means balancing with the opposite. Um, And if you're sort of talking about medicine, this is called allopathic medicine. It's the opposite of homeopathic, which means you cure with likes. Allopathic means that you cure with opposites. So if you have a cold, we still use the humoral term for that. Yeah, yeah. You balance it with something that's hot, hot and moist. Will will you know, cold and dry, or whatever, whatever it may be. You balance with something that's the opposite, and this could be food. It could be, um, it could be changing your atmosphere. So the weather has a lot to do with it. Bundling up obviously warms your body. Exercise does, um, as does your sleep patterns, as does the amount of sexual activity you have. So, so this this is not when they say diet, they don't mean the very narrow sense of what you eat. Dieta in Latin actually means all of these things that you have control over. You don't have control over some things with health, but the, your uh, body temperature, the environment, the um, amount of uh, sleep you get, the, the processes of digestion and evacuation are part of this. They're, they're what the um, Arab philosophers called the non-naturals. And this, it doesn't mean that they're unnatural. It means that they are things which are, um, are um, inside your body that you can actually con- control. They're not outside you in nature. You know, some of the words that you're using are concepts, um, hot, cold, and all the other things like dry. They are not that historic. I recall both of my grandmothers saying things like, oh, don't eat that. That's cold. It's not good for your constitution. I'm trying to translate it into English or don't eat this. That's too hot or other words that it's not medical advice, but it sort of goes back to some of the things you were sharing. what was the purpose of these correctives from what from what you said earlier i take it none of them for really for being slimmer right well no weight loss diets don't really come about until about the 18th century um and in fact if you look at they they certainly understood that some people are bigger than others but they considered that to be just a phlegmatic constitution it meant that if you eat a lot of food and you're well nourished the excess nutrients would just get deposited as fat on your body because it's cold and it gets, it congeals there and it sticks. People who have hotter running constitutions of choleric or sanguine people, and especially if you get more exercise, the fat doesn't congeal there. So it's, so it really is, is very, it's not only very logical, but strangely the origins of this physiology, which are Hippocrates and Galen, really have to do with um, cooking metaphors. And most of what they think is going on in your body is actually cooking. And in fact, in Latin, the word, when you eat food that goes into your stomach, it cooks with the digestive heat. Interesting. You are what you eat, so to speak, right? Well, yeah, totally. So let's talk about what it meant to eat right, quote unquote, centuries past. Um, Sure. sure. Yeah, give me some examples, please. So some of the stuff has to do with eating according to your humoral complexion. Um, Hot people should eat cold foods. You know, dry people should eat moistening foods like cucumbers if you're dry, like uh, spicy foods if you're melancholic or or phlegmatic. If you're really choleric, you want to eat something that's sour. So in general, the way that they categorized foods was that if it was sweet, it was hot and moist, meaning nutritious, good for you. Sugar is uh, the best thing you could eat. It's the most nutritious, healthy food <laughs> you could possibly get your hands on. Um, 
and uh, things that are spicy or like pepper or things that are, are biting or salty, those are hot and dry. Things that are bitter are cold and dry and things that are phlegmatic or cold and moist and watery. So peaches, cucumbers, uh, sour things also fit in that category. So, so the logic is really just balancing the food against your complexion, but also balancing the food with each other. So there's a strange logic of, say, if something is difficult to, to digest, let's say it's a phlegmatic food like um, fish, you'd want something that's cutting and obstursive that's going to make it easier to digest so you put lemon juice on your fish so it doesn't, doesn't clog up the system. But aside from this whole humoral thing, the ancient Greeks, this is really where this stuff comes from, were also obsessed with the digestibility of the food, meaning how much digestive heat and effort does it take to break it down. And foods that are really coarse and rough, like beef or beans or cabbage, those things have to be eaten only by people who have very strong digestive systems, so like peasants and laborers. Whereas foods that are light and white and delicate and sweet can be eaten by people who don't get a lot of exercise, especially scholars and people who are in business and don't get a whole lot of manual labor. So there's a kind of social stigma based, you know, in within this whole diet from the very, very start is, you know, pheasant is for um, noblemen and wealthy people and cabbage and beans and you know turnips are for peasants and that's the way it has to be because if you give something very light to a peasant like like a, a delicate chicken or a k-bomb it's going to burn up in their system and they won't get any nutritional value this is so you, crazy it is it's amazing and if you give something really indigestible like tough beef to a to a scholar Forget it. It's going to corrupt in their stomach, never get digested. Foul vapors will go into their heads. They will have nightmares and they'll ultimately get sick. This this um, makes me think of uh, uh, our trip to London uh, three weeks ago. We were in the Tower of London and they told us the reason these big veterans that were in the tower called beef eaters. Yeah. The reason they're called that is because they were fed beef. That's what they ate. And you see them well, this like above six feet tall. That is a British thing, British thing, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's... another part of this whole system, interestingly, is this idea that the food that is most similar to you is the one that can be most easily assimilated into your body. So the stuff that is most nutritious is meat. Um, in fact, human meat, if it, human flesh would be the most nutritious if we're allowed to eat it. But pig comes close, beef, things that are, are close to us, things that are not similar to us, like vegetables, are really not nutritious, which is why it's good hmm. to eat them during Lent, because you are not going to get any nutritional value. You're not going to have this excess of nutrients, which they believed, and this is going to sound bizarre also, that if the excess of nutrients didn't congeal as fat in your body, it turned into sperm in men and women. <laughs> this is bizarre. So and that signals your libido. So so you have to be very careful during Lent and on fasting days that you cannot eat meat. This is the whole logic of it. Oh, because boy. then you're going to get aroused and you know you're going to be inclined to sin. So so the whole I'll remember that next time I have a burger. Yeah, oh, well, absolutely. So, so uh, it's not only meat; it's also wine. Wine is the analog to bloods, for obvious, you know, Christianity also, and so it's the thing that's most easily converted into your own blood. So, wine is a necessary nutrient. Believe it or not. Oh, I see. I well, I love that. I'll have to this Friday night. I'll I'll remember that. Um, you mentioned cucumbers uh, in in. 
I was reviewing one of your writings and you were saying uh, melons and cucumbers were a no-no. Did I read that correctly? People love them, but uh, I guess experts were saying don't have them. Is that it? Well, they are particularly dangerous. And the idea is that they are phlegmatic. They go bad very easily outside your body, but also inside your body. So that if you have a, let's say you've just eaten a meal, and then at the end you have some peaches, they're going to sit on top of that meal, undigested, totally ruin your whole system. Oh, now, wow. I think that, that because of this, people said, oh, my doctor is telling me don't eat peaches. I'm going to eat peaches. Especially the fashion at the time was to cut the peaches up in little squares and drop them in your sweet white wine, uh, tesserae. They're like little little mosaic pieces. Little oh, interesting. And you put it in a chilled chilled wine with ice and some peaches in it. And I had this last night, actually. Oh (laughs) wow, that sounds great. It is great. You mentioned libido. Uh, They had advice about sex. We're not talking about diet, but the type of food that you should have for a better sex life. Well, yeah, I've I've written a lot about aphrodisiacs. And I think in general, people that come up with completely mistaken ideas about why certain things are aphrodisiac, because they have phallic shape or they have a texture that's somehow like genitals or whatever. That's not the logic at all. Uh, The real reason that most things are aphrodisiac is precisely because they're very nutritious. It's things like beef, like wine, things that are going to heat your system up. They're going to have a, an excess of nutrition that's going to stimulate your libido. And you have to also notice that... Not oysters? They're oysters, not really. Not not, not really. No, not, not in, at that time. That's a very yeah. 18th to 19th century era of Casanova to the present kind of yeah. thing. Um, but things that were nutritious and wine were the, were the best aphrodisiacs in their mind. But there's a whole category of other things that accidentally become aphrodisiacs because they're salty and they created an itch in the genitals, which is kind of bizarre. Uh, this is that's that's a quote I think from Clement of Alexandria, um, oh, and that's wow. why oysters. That's how oysters originally come in there. It's the saltiness and the brininess. Um, there's also some, and I know this is going to sound absolutely absurd, but there's some foods that inflate your body. Uh, that are like you mean below chew obviously you know things that are difficult to digest turnips yeah. whatever root vegetables because they're not refined by the sun they're underground so they have crude humors as they would have said so when you eat those things your whole body inflates now you remember those little stress toys that you squeeze yeah and the nose yeah. Would come out or something yeah, 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 yeah. Would come out. that's yeah. what they're thinking is that you you, you get erect from from oh, foods that inflate you <laughs> artificially Wow, next time I'm bloated, it's going to have a whole different meaning. <laughs> it's just going to feel weird. Thanks to you, uh, Dr. Abella. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about foodstuffs that were new to Europe. We'll be right back. In this episode, we're exploring the history and culture of what it means to eat right. In a prior episode, we connected eating right and exercise with Alzheimer's disease. My guest for that episode was Dr. Gil Rabinovich, a distinguished professor in memory and aging in the Department of Neurology, Radiology, and Biomedical Imaging at University of California, San Francisco, which most of us know as UCSF. I spoke with him after Biogen's Adriahelm Alzheimer's drug failed to live up to its much-promoted promises. I asked him, why don't we have a cure for Alzheimer's disease? 
despite billions to spend on research and drug development. He gave me a compelling explanation to that question, but he also gave us some good news that while we don't have a cure for Alzheimer's disease yet, we have learned how to live long and productive lives with Alzheimer's. In the detailed caption of this episode, I've provided a link to my conversation with Dr. Rabinovich back in Season 2, Episode 7. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Albala. Dr. Albala, in your book titled Food and Early Modern Europe, Food Through History, you write the following, quote, food became a cardinal concern in explorations of the new world, as well as fundamental element of global trade, unquote. So let's talk about this global trade for food that became a cardinal concern. What foodstuffs came from the new world to the Americas? Well, it's it's a lot more complicated than that. We we end up thinking sometimes, oh, food goes from Americas to Europe and yeah. from Europe to Americas. It's a lot more complicated. It's actually global in in scale, meaning that oh. food goes from Africa to America. It goes from South America to Africa. It goes from Europe to South America. So it goes from Asia to Mexico. I mean, there's all sorts of food um, trade stuff and stuff basically becomes global after 1492. Um, and keep in mind that Columbus was really trying to find China, right? I mean, he was yeah, not yeah. trying to discover anything. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, they did find some, they found silver eventually in Mexico by the 1520s, but they still were really interested in getting to China. So there was a trade going from uh, Acapulco to Manila. Galleons went across the Pacific. So you find Filipino food is kind of... Descend connected to Mexico, you know, weirdly enough, avocados and chocolate and things like that. Um, but the foods that go in every possible direction, let me, I'll just give you a brief catalog. So you think tomatoes, chilies, squash, uh, potatoes from South America, um, all go from Mexico almost everywhere in the world within the first decades of the 16th century. Chili peppers are the most amazing, actually, because if you think of, like, chili pepper, wait, in Thailand, comes from Mexico? Yeah. In Sichuan, in Japan, Polarashi, in Africa, in, you know, the cuisines all over the world that use chili peppers, they come from the Americas, uh, you know, and spread very, very quickly. Paprika in Hungary and in Turkish cuisine. I mean, this is, it's so quick that people don't even realize that it's an American thing. Now, what's weird is that Northern Europe, uh, most, and in much of Southern Europe too, never gets pepper, <laughs> like never gets ch- chili peppers. Um, now, is it because they don't like spicy food? And I would argue exactly the opposite. They love hot food. They love ginger. They love pepper. And the Portuguese, who are bringing this stuff directly from Asia, remember this is the first time there's a direct trade route from Macau to Lisbon, basically, through lots of different pathways, um, is that the Portuguese want to protect their monopoly on pepper. They're not going to bring seeds to spread around with chili peppers, which, which chili peppers you can grow anywhere. Black pepper, you cannot. It only grows in, oh. in tropics in Malabar. So, so they're very careful in not bringing chili to Europe. Um, and that gets there a few places. You know, the Spanish have their smoked paprika. In Sicily, they have chili peppers. But look, uh, this piment desplat in southern France. But you go to the north, where they can grow chili peppers, of course. There's nothing. It's just, you know, Germany, England, Scandinavia, northern France, Belgium, Netherlands. Uh, Poland, you know, plus that whole swathe 
you just don't find chili peppers at all. It has to do with business, monopoly. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's a theory. Um, there are many other reasons, but but I think primarily people like spicy food, but they they want the, the importers wanted to keep it pepper. Um, um, I'm wondering if you said things go other ways. Let me give you a couple of just weird examples. Please, please. You, where do peanuts come from? Georgia. You'd think Georgia was a great idea. No. <laughs> How about before that? Um, I actually don't know. You might think Africa. Like you make, makes there, right? makes that makes sense. Yeah. I know they come from South America. They went from South America to the west coast of Africa to Georgia. And th- there's so many plants like this that make this bizarre crossing and recrossing um, in so many ways. If I were to say pineapples. Hawaii. You might think Hawaii. No, it's the Caribbean. <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> you know, they're brought to Hawaii later, um, as are macadamia nuts, which come from Australia. They're not. They're not. Uh, there's, in fact, there's nothing native to Hawaii. No edible food is native to Hawaii. Everything was brought by people. Um, oh wow! And fish, you know, but but apart from that, nothing. Um, I want to ask you about this. Uh, well, I, I want to ask you about potatoes. Okay. Uh, uh, I've read uh, more than one history book. In which they've talked about potatoes, how they changed history. They came from Peru. They even they changed the way armies march. Uh, now they have more. Talk, talk a little bit about that. How? So one, it's true that it came from Peru. Sure. So the, I mean, there's there's a lot of there's several books about potatoes actually. The yeah. classic is Redford Salomon, wrote in the 40s. I, what I think is really the first single subject book on food. You know. Yeah. Um, the social 40s. influence of the potato and stuff like that. Well, any case, potatoes don't catch on in Europe um, very quickly at all. Even though Peru is discovered and settled mid 16th century, 1540s to 60s, um, potatoes are known as a um, sort of botanical curiosity, and they have cousins in Europe in the Solanacea family that are poisonous. So I think when people looked at these, they oh. thought we're not eating this stuff. This is, po-. and the same with tomatoes. You know, tomatoes are Solanacea. Um, and Belladonna, you know, is, uh, is its cousin. So it's it's at- atropine is the poison that makes your eye- eyeballs wide and it kills you eventually if you take too much of it. But, but anyways, I think people looked at it and said, and this leaves smell bad. And they just, they sort of knew its botanical cousins and thought this is, can't be food people started eating them anyway and planting them and in fact they, they tasted them too and, and interestingly european the dietary authors don't know what to make of potatoes they think they're like truffles which suggests to me that they're actually probably pretty small and they're not the big monster russets that we're used to yeah, yeah. And, they, and they think i uh, think they, they Treat them like truffles as, as an excrement of the earth. That's what they call them. I think that's <laughs> that's going to be very dangerous, impossible to digest. And of course, you shouldn't eat anything like this if you're sensible. Um, and over the centuries, some places planted them, the Irish especially. Um, places in Northern England planted potatoes. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of stories about how people got other people to eat potatoes, you know, there's one completely ridiculous apocryphal story. I think it's Frederick the Great who wanted to encourage potato eating. And so he planted. So a this garden. is Germany. Yes. Planted a garden with them and, um, or it's Prussia actually planted a garden and put guards around it 
So people would pay attention thinking, oh, there must be something really special there. And then at <laughs> night when the guards left, the people came and stole the potatoes and ate them and said, that's really good. Um, I, it's, I don't think it's true. Um, Parmentier is, is true, though. The August, is it August Parmentier? Anyway, Parmentier was the guy who um, promoted potatoes in 18th century France to Louis XIV. Louis XIV wore a little potato blossom in his lapel for, <laughs> to, to sort of honor what Parmentier was doing. But, but Parmentier tried to extend bread with potato flour, which he certainly can do, um, and promoted it after the revolution as a very particularly Republican egalitarian food because it was inexpensive and you wouldn't have famine. You wouldn't Highly nutritional? Wheat prices. And it is, of course, yeah, totally. It's yeah. great for you. Um, you know, we're talking about spices and it's global trade. Spices in Thailand come from Mexico and even going back. Really fascinating, which makes me think, what was food like in Europe before all these spices came to it? Was it just all bland? Well, I think you kind of have it backwards. Um, the oh. spices are there most of the time um, in recorded history. It's people loved spices in ancient Rome. They adored, you know, they had slightly different. They loved pepper. They loved ginger. They loved um, uh, silphium, which is probably an extinct plant. Uh, it, the, by legend, it goes extinct. But they liked really spicy, sweet, sour. They loved fish sauce. So, so, so the so the you know, highly seasoned food is there from the very earliest cookbooks. Um, and it remains in place all the way up through the Renaissance. Food is still very heavily spiced and sweetened. They love sugar on everything. So you have a bowl of pasta. There's no tomato sauce, of course. There's probably cinnamon and sugar and butter on it, which is delicious, mind you. Um, nothing wrong with cinnamon that. Cinnamon in a bowl of pasta. Okay. Oh, yeah. And sugar. Totally. It's, it's fantastic. I, I have to try that now. Okay. And take that same mixture, sprinkle it on a roast chicken someday and see how happy it will become. It's great. Oh, wow. Um, so anyway, food, food is very, very heavily spiced. Up until about the 17th century, mid-17th century, supposedly La Varenne is the one who uh, initiates all this. And he um, basically banishes most of the spices. Some disappear entirely. I mean, cardamom goes out of cooking, long pepper, Cubebs, grains of paradise, galangal. Those were very common spices in the late Middle Ages. But in the 17th century, um, they either get removed from the main courses, as does sugar, or they get banished to the very end of the meal. So you'd find spice sometimes a little at the end. And you might find a little remnant, a little grating of nutmeg in something or cloves stuck into a, an onion. But it's not this complex mixture of many spices, more rem reminiscent of Indian cooking, really. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's what um, it seems closest to me. Can we go back to what you just shared with us? Two questions. One, why were spices banned? and how did who had this authority to do this? Well, no, they weren't banned. They they okay. go out of fashion. There's a very big difference. So okay, so okay, the, let's talk about the, the that. Spices, yeah, there's a couple of reasons. One is that the humoral theory, which recommends spices as correctives for food, starts to break down. I think that's very important. Two, the Portuguese who are now bringing spices into Europe in great numbers. They don't lower the cost. But they're ubiquitous. Anyone can buy spices now. 
what do you suppose that does to elite people who are trying to show off by having lots of spice on their food? Ah, uh, you're no, no longer anymore. Yeah, it's not, it's no big, you know, if everyone's driving around in a Cadillac, you need a Lamborghini, right? So, um, and I think also <laughs> the spices, um, they go out of fashion because people start thinking food should taste like itself. That's a major culinary shift from something that I have, I've coined a phrase, which I hope catches on, called polysavory, meaning lots of different flavors, sweet, sour, bitter, uh, hot, salty, umami, whatever, all mixed together, which all, most cuisines on earth are still that way. And the European flavor profile changes to, here's a piece of protein, the sauce is made of that same thing. So a gravy on a uh, on a roast, chicken sauce made of chicken stock that goes on it, fish sauce made of of fish, and that the flavors should not be jarring or... Some people do that with Thanksgiving turkey, like use the the juices and everything to flavor the turkey. Anything, any classic cooking, you're going to make stocks and fawns based on the main ingredient so that the flavors harmonize. And so intense acids are banished, Sweetness is banished to the end of the meal, and um, and you just don't find all those spices, those complex you know combinations of spice that ultimately come from the Middle East, really Middle Eastern cooking, and and I think you know like most fashions, there's exceptions everywhere. You know, some people that linger on the Italians actually hold on to this stuff through the 17th century, but the French set fashion in language and clothes and architecture, and everyone looks at what the French are doing and they say, oh, this is a new cuisine. It's lighter. It's healthier. It's, it's better for you. It's, you know, it's all sorts of, and, and it's presented in a different way. You know, instead of having this enormous array of foods plopped on the table at once, it's their own plate by the end of the 18th century, you know, and it's, it's, it's just a different way of thinking about food. Um, you said sweetness is banished to the end of the meal. Are we talking about dessert now? That's where dessert comes from. Right, right, right. Well, dessert literally means to dessert and desert are the same word. It means to empty, to clear the table. Everything gets taken away, and then you bring on the the final meal. Oh, I never thought of it that way. That is, wow, that's really interesting. Um, I wanted to speak with you about spice business but i think you already answered the question that i had i wanted to talk about what happens you know why this becomes a big business and you corrected me said adele you had it backwards the spices did exist in europe so perhaps the reason why the spice route and all 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 this business took off it's not so much that they were not available in europe it's rather that they could now be made into a humongous business commoners could have it it's not just a king anymore right um uh, you know, interesting okay so spices are imported you know in ancient times into europe um that trade doesn't completely disappear but it really dries up a lot um from the fall of the roman empire all the way up through about 10th 11th century they're still getting some pepper you know things but it's very rare it's not not all of the cuisine and then through the Middle Ages, the interest in spices keeps increasing and increasing and increasing. And this is, of course, why Columbus wanted to get to China. Yeah. Spice trade, you know, direct route, trade route. It's why the Portuguese did go to China, ultimately, in Japan and Indonesia uh, and India. And, you know, and um, 
you know, the spite the reason that people like spices so much, I think, is one of those bugbears of food history. In fact, probably the most notorious of all is this idea that people use spices to cover up the aroma, the odor of rotting meat. If you can afford spices, you can afford fresh meat. I mean, that's just... (laughs) Oh, I love that. No one in their right mind would take rotting meat and put something really, really expensive on it. You're going to buy fresh meat. And B, you can't eat rotting meat. I'm sorry, you get sick from it. Everyone does, would have in the past as we do today. But you often see that in movies or whatever. Just, yeah, they repeat it because they want to believe it, but it's it's complete nonsense. Um, the real reason is to show off. It might be a little bit medicinal. Um, it might be, uh, you know, something exotic and to stand out. And, you know, because food is basically boring <laughs> you put some exciting spices on it so yeah like, presentation um that's how the, the the french presentation and also spicing it up uh, otherwise it is boring um let's take a break here we'll be back after a short break to talk about recipes from history hey there news peelers we're working on a brand new website with many super duper features including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series with related blogs that are updated weekly, like series on U.S. politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights, and also series on many other countries, like Russia, Ukraine, China, and Brazil, and the British monarchy, and also a series on revolutions and protests, like those in Iran, Israel, and France. So be sure to check it out at historybehindnews.com. See you guys there. Dr. Albala, in this uh, segment, I want to speak with you about some recipes from history. But before I go there, I want to go to the first segment of our conversation. Uh, you were talking about books between 1450 to 1650, about 120 books that were, you know, different. They talked about different types of food. Things go in and out of fashion and the advice that are being given about different types of food. What I'm wondering is this, who are these for? Is it the rich? If we're talking about 1450 to 1650 and books, you already are excluding a lot of people because one, they can't read. And two, books are so darn expensive. No one can afford, most people cannot afford to buy a book, let alone a book about cooking. If they bought a book, it'd be the Bible. That actually isn't true. But, but it's not. Century, oh, please go ahead. Printing is fairly um, cheap. Um, you know, okay. the Reformation really wouldn't have happened and vice versa. You know, getting people to read the Bible was part of the whole Reformation agenda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, printing printing does become fairly cheap within 50 years of the invention of the printing press. So that's okay. that's not, not true. But literacy is still fairly rare. Um, and so your question is that Who's reading these? And the way I like to describe it is if you could imagine that there are several different ways of thinking about food, different people who eat in different ways. Peasants eat what they can get their hands on and what's traditional. My point exactly. Like, who's this advice for? Luxuries every now and then for holidays, and they probably don't eat a whole lot of meat, whatever. Then the other very far extreme is the court, where they are eating 
the most extravagant luxuries, the spices, the, you know, cookbooks of the era like Bartolomeo Scappi includes recipes for hedgehog and bear. And, you know, there's things that, that why are wow. they because they're exotic and they're interesting. And he wants bear? To okay. He can get his, he can teach you how to cook anything. Somewhere between these two socially, I would say there's also a monastic diet and there's a whole mess of books, which hopefully I'm going to come up out with a book someday about fasting because I've done a whole lot of research on this. And there's there's people who, um, you know, think food is, shouldn't be important. <laughs> you should suffer and so forth. But anyway, it's about not food, not really. But I would say there's a whole other way of thinking about food, which is eating for health, right? Dieting, uh, maintaining, you know, eating sensibly, eating right, as I called the book, I think. Um, now, who those people are, they're sometimes connected to court, but they're usually scholars and well, people who are wealthy enough to be able to choose what they can, yeah, they can obviously read, but they're professionals. They're middle class. They're people who reject the court. Actually, don't want to eat extravagantly the way the kings do. Yeah, and they're trying not to imitate them. They don't want to eat like the peasants. And they certainly don't want to eat like like penitent monks and you know uh, aesthetic aesthetic or fast. But they but they carve out this different food ideology, which is eating for health and you, you there's still people like that of course you know today they tend to be wealthy um you know middle class people with a lot of leisure and expendable income and, and with a certain aesthetic that their first goal is personal health and maybe environment and animal rights and all this other stuff that's a, that's a very ethical way of eating right and yeah. this, this was this is a, a precursor of that obviously very different dimensions and how, you know the details are all different but socially it's people who are just below the the, the, the court, the nobility. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the recipes for a hedgehog and how to cook a bear. Let's talk about your book, which is titled Cooking in Europe, 1250 to 1650. When I was reading a review of this book, I came across um, examples of recipes from that period. Hemp seed soup, digestive pottage, carp fritters, Frog pie, counterfeit snow, nuns bozzolati. Do you care to talk about any of these? These are all great. So I've cooked these. Oh, <laughs> you have? Yes, of course. Frog, uh, frog pie? Um, yeah, totally. Um, so oh, so wow. the, the hemp pie, if I remember, is from um, Platina, Bartolome Masaki, who was a papal first um, librarian of the Vatican Library. Um He's actually, we know exactly what he looked like. There's a painting of him by Malozzo Forli. But anyway, he um, didn't write these recipes himself. He stole them basically from a guy named Martino of Como. And he acknowledges him in one line somewhere in the book where he says, my friend, I, everything I know about cooking, I learned from Martino. He didn't huh. say that he actually copied the recipes directly. Yeah. Um, in any case, the uh, hemp, he means um, flaxseed. It's not marijuana. You know, it's not... <laughs> yeah. it's not um, I got excited there for a second. Okay, you can buy in a health food store. Yes, you grind it up and you, you know, and and it's funny because the word he uses in Latin is cannabis. You know, so people look at this and they go pot brownies in the fifteenth century. (laughs) Hence my question. Yeah, it's not. It's does it taste good? Um, no, it's um, it's it's like you know when you eat things like um, I don't know if you ever had hemp seeds. You could put them in. They make butter out of it. They do. no, it doesn't taste good. I don't think so. And in fact, interestingly, he after he gives the recipe, he said this is going to harm your head. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so, and he so, does this all the time, actually. You know, he he gives a recipe for eggplants, and he said, "This is so bad, feed it to your enemies." <laughs> I love it. A, a, a recipe not for you, but for your enemies. Let's talk about frog pie. What is that? Is this from Mrs. Bugo? I, I'm I'm remembering back from 2003 when the, or two when this book came out. Um, so so frogs are not you know they're not unusual and they're not even strange tasting. Um, the I, the way I usually I mean you can cook a whole frog, but mostly people uh, take the legs off and pull the skin off and. and it, I hate to say it tastes like chicken, but it sort of does. It's very light white meat. Um, and using it in a pie is not really that unusual. I mean, I the last time I really went all out on frog, um, I did a recipe for my noodle soup book. And I thought, you know, when they make, if you make like a stock out of bones, why not do that out of frog bones? Like make a frog, proper frog stock and take the meat off and bread it and, you know, like you would do a katsu, chicken katsu, or pork katsu, and then put it on noodles with some, that have some seaweed in it. And I wanted to sort of bring out the frog flavor. Um, and it sounds bizarre, I know, but it was just exquisite. It was really just very delicate, wow. lovely, slightly fishy flavor. Did you share with frogs. anyone? Um, no, but it's in the book. <laughs> it's in there, the picture of it. What um, what what is counterfeit snow? Uh, so counterfeit snow is. Um, was very, very popular in the middle of the 16th century, the 1540s or so. And it's basically like, a, it's kind of like a meringue. It's it's whipped up cream and egg whites and sugar and usually rose water and things. And very interestingly, some of the authors didn't have a whisk. They actually took a stick, cut it four square and splayed out the end and used that as a whisk, which I found really amazing. Um, but what they would do is that they would whisk up this stuff and then pass it through a colander so it falls like snow over an apple with a little branch of rosemary stuck in the top. So it has this kind of lovely little winter Aww. scene. Um, it's it's also mentioned in, um, gosh, who's it? Um, Cardano. Giordano, uh, Cardano uh, mentions, he's a physician and a, a very interesting figure, um, called it Lactis Spuma. <laughs> so it was kind of a, the, the foam of milk. Is, oh wow! Translate that, but it's sort of like the um, the pre a precursor to ice cream in popularity. Everyone was really into that. Next time I have ice cream uh, or, or uh, frozen yogurt, I'll have to think about that counterfeit snow. Um, that could be a brand for a new type of ice cream. Uh, let's talk about chicken and beef. You mentioned both. We talked about beef actually a little bit more. The way I understand it, eating chicken. It's not something that was prevalent. Now we can go to Costco. There's chicken e easily. Going back even 90 years ago, 80 years ago, I, is, am I misinformed on this? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so chicken <laughs> is not, if you're poor, no, you don't eat your chicken because it lays you eggs, right? Exactly. And yeah, they are yeah. not specific layers and fryers and you know, they don't, they don't specify them the way the modern chicken industry does. Yeah. Um, and ideally you have chickens that are running outside in the yard and that taste good, you know, but if you're wealthy enough, they preferred capon. Capon is a castrated rooster, which grows really big. It gets a really sort of muscular texture to the flesh. It's, it's much more interesting than chicken and they're, they're older. They're usually a few years old. So, um, so people would usually make stock out of capon and um, and serve it. There's there's a there's a very interesting dish made out of it also called blamanche. And you're gonna you're gonna 
<laughs> you're going to be frightened by this. So, so imagine taking the chicken, poaching it, the, the kebab, and shredding the pieces so you have very fine strings, uh-huh. and pounding it with sugar and almond milk and sometimes rose water. It turns white. It's called blamanche, and it's actually the ancestor of the modern blamanche that would be almond and you know a sweet dessert. But this one is based on chicken, and it's and you're thinking what sweet chicken yeah. pudding kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And when I've made this with people, I tell them, okay, taste this, put it in your mouth, don't have any preconceived notions of what, what is going on and what it's supposed to be like. And I say, what does this remind you of? Think hard because the flavor will be very, very familiar to you. It's chicken nuggets, which are sweet, which are very sweet. Really? It's mushy, it's stringy, you know, it doesn't have the frying, the breading on the outside, but it tastes like the filling of chicken nuggets. Going back to my question about chicken, I'm still not clear on this. Was it available to all people to have chicken, let's say lower middle class or peasants? So that yes, became absolutely. a thing in the 20th century. Is that correct? Well, or? chicken, the popularity of chicken has gone up, you know, 20 fold in the past 50 years. Yeah. But um, but chickens are around and people who are poor don't eat much meat at all. You know, so, yeah. so that's, that's not really a question. Um, but if you have money, chicken certainly be you know a common thing to be uh, as a protein pork you know it depends on where you are also you know in, in italy you know chickens are usually served old in the form of soup not a young chicken not like a cutlet or anything like that yeah. but pork you know especially preserved pork salamis and guanciale and gulatello and hams and all different kinds that's the way you you, you know you slaughter a pig in the fall and then you you know, cure as much of it as you can. You eat the sausages quickly, but you know, it's it's. Um, I think the the more common food for peasants would be pork. Um, how about beef? Was beef something that masses could eat, or was that something um, that uh... something you didn't want to eat if you could avoid <laughs> it? Because remember, these are working animals, right? They're they're yeah. there yeah. to pull plows, and by the time they're that old that you're going to eat them, they need to be boiled to death and and boiling is the common way to cook them um, in the cookbooks it's very interesting rarely, i mean they do there's some grilling i'm thinking of scappy has grilled th- rolled like thin uh, slices of beef that are rolled around fillings and then grilled on a skewer you know it, it exists there but like the whole idea of having a steak it's, just, it's not there there at all but, I but remember they're eating with their fingers, for example. That's another thing. Oh, so you know, oh, 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 you know, wow. so you're not going to have a big hunk of steak. You'd have to pick up a bite. It's not interesting. Uh, interesting. Um, uh, I, I want to talk about your book, uh, which is titled "Cooking in Europe: 1250 to 1650." For a second, is there anything special about that 400-year time period, 1250 to 1650? Um, there isn't. <laughs> the reason I do that, well, it, it is it is sort of unified in that the earliest written manuscript cookbooks come out about there, and the cuisine changes about 1650. But the way I conceived it, I edited this food series at the time for Greenwood Press, um, and I wanted to do historic books about historic cooking in that series. I got Ivan Day to do the 1650 to 1950, I think. Um, he's a very famous food historian also um, in Britain. And I did the, the first half, he did the second half, which, is, which was a lot of fun. I think we also did um, 
19th century America, we did, uh, I don't know, maybe a dozen books in that series on historic cooking. Um, so I thought that the 1250 to 1650 kind of made sense because they're a lot, they're cookbooks, you, you know, it's, it's based on cookbooks. As you were um, explaining um, the reasons behind this time period and your collaboration uh, with a scholar from Britain, um, you know, this just, it's natural for me to follow up with this question. How did you get into this subject? The history of food? Uh, well, yeah, where, where, I like to tell this story. So if everyone, <laughs> people have heard it before, pardon me. It's, um, <laughs> I went to graduate school at Columbia, um, intending to do Renaissance cultural history, social history kind of thing. Um, I did not have a topic I knew I wanted to write about. I don't know. I was interested in a lot of different things. And my um, advisor at the time, Gene Rice, said, why don't you walk across the park to the New York Academy of Medicine? And I was like, what? Why? <laughs> Does that make any sense? Uh, yeah. I'm not, I, I've never shown any interest in this. And I said, why did you suggest that? And he said, well, they have comfortable chairs. And he was being <laughs> absolutely serious. It's a great library. They have... Um, and they will take care of you, and the chairs are comfortable. They'll never, there won't be anyone else in there, so you, it'll be quiet. You make an appointment, you just. And I literally took his advice. I went there. I opened up one filing cabinet. This is before computers, and someone, Margaret, Margaret Barclay Wilson, was a um, collector in uh, the early 20th century who decided she wanted to buy, own every book written on the history of nutrition, and she did, and she donated them all to the New York Academy of Medicine, and they were all just sitting there. So I literally did all my research in one room. Um, and it That's took a great story. You So you years. stumbled on this. Yeah, totally by accident. And I thought, and, and I also got very good advice. Uh, my advisor said, you know, you have to, if you're going to pick a topic, do something you really love. It has to, because if you get bored with it halfway through, you're in big trouble. Yeah. And I've always been interested in food. I've always loved cooking. And I saw this and I said, well, this is kind of nutritional theory was really totally about food. And I thought this will be fun. It was a challenge because it was written in six or seven different languages. So that was, you know, I, had to, I do know how to read those. But it took a lot of time to take notes, to really absorb. And I think the most interesting thing about that whole process, I, this took from about 1989 to 93 or 4, somewhere in there, and is that when you read something often enough, you start to internalize the information, the advice, you start to believe it. So for those years, I actually had a humoral body. I mean, I, I, if I had cucumbers, I would get phlegmatic humors. I just, I knew exactly what these guys were that talking is about. wild. I was reading it all day. And psychosomatically, I just sort of, it, it, I became humoral. I became a 16th century body. I'm over it now. Thank God. Thank God. But it, was, but it was very, very strange process. And in fact, I kind of walked away from the whole thing. And I got a job in 94 um, here at the University of the Pacific, which I'm where I still am, same office. And um, I was, you know, sort of spending most of my time writing my courses, doing, you know, committee work, whatever it was. And uh, the um, guy who was the director of general education said, would you be interested in this job? And I said, well, maybe, but what, what's your advice? What should I do? And I was coming up for tenure and hadn't really written anything. And he said, oh, no, you don't want to do this. Forget this program. You need to write a book. You need to get published. You want tenure? And I was like, oh, okay. This was 1999. I submitted this manuscript to University of California Press. It took a really long time 
on it. It didn't come out until 2002. I don't know why. University presses are really slow, but that was just under the wire for me to get tenure. And I thought, this whole writing book thing, this is really fun. You've written many books, yeah. Another one the next year, and another one the next year, another one. So I'm, I'm actually... Gosh, I've been at Pacific for 28, 29 years. That's how many books I've written. So, so, or you know, some of them are edited collections and yeah, yeah, translations. But that's a wonderful story. You, you, you said these books were written in several different languages, and you speak them all. Some of them are not spoken. So, classical Latin. Some people do speak it. I don't know how they do it. Do do you understand? How many Um, languages do you read? So, so it, it was well. It's kind of an accident how this happened. So I studied uh, French in high school, which was lovely. And I still, I'm pretty fond of French. Um, and then I got to college and I wanted to do Russian because oh, I wanted wow. to be a foreign correspondent. I can still speak Russian. I don't know why, because I had oh, a teacher wow. who was like, motion takes accusative. She banged it into our heads, uh, Russian. So I can... I don't. I can't read any Russian, but I can speak a little, which is weird. Um, and then I went back to French. Then I had to take Italian because I wanted to do the Renaissance. I did Latin. I did German because at grad school at Columbia, everyone had to do German. And the saddest thing about German was I had a professor who was beautiful. She was just stunningly lovely. I sat in the front row, hung on her every word, passed the proficiency exams, no trouble, and then proceeded to forget everything and I have oh that, that is sad you can't impress her now that's okay languages. Anyway, that's in Spanish and that's Portuguese. you're a genius that's that's very impressive uh dr albala uh let's take a break here stay with me and dr albala as we get into the perspective the history behind news podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms of course we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast especially on apple and spotify and remember don't keep us to yourself tell a friend about the history behind news podcast Dr. Albala, we talked about food history, so let's now turn back full circle to dieting and drugs for dieting, uh, such as Ozempic, Bagovi, uh, Manjaro, uh, which inspired my conversation with you. Going back in history, were there drugs, let's say devices or procedures prescribed to people to lose weight? Well, this is um, really, a, it's a, it's a, Controversial topic. Um, there are why, why is that, it controversial? Well, there's some people who disagree with me about when it actually comes out, but I'm going to stick to my guns here. Okay. I would say that humoral medicine does not have a concept of clinical obesity. They generally think that people, some people are bigger, some are smaller, and that depends on their internal heat. And, and it, there's nothing aberrant about it. It's not a pathology. It's just a body type. Which sounds nice, actually. Yeah. It's the 18th century. There are mostly German um, people doing their disser- defending their dissertations when body fat becomes a hot topic. And a, I would say a dozen or so um, dissertations come out of Leipzig and Halle and u- universities um, where people s- start to explain why people are fat, not only using very non-humoral terms, they're using mechanical terms and, very, very different physio- physiological systems. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but they're also providing remedies. And I think the turning point is when there's a public saying, doctor, I trust you. What can you do with me? I know that there's something wrong with this. And the doctors themselves start saying, yes, this is a pathology. There's something wrong. You're unhealthy. We're going to provide remedies. And they are, their diets. There's, you know, George Shaney is the, is the most famous of these in England who um, promoted a milk and seed diet. And he himself was over 450 pounds and lost. Good a few Lord. Pounds. And he was sort of poster child in, he went to Bath and did these, you know, bathing and eating diets, but he lost a lot of weight himself and gained it back then lost it. He was, yeah, he was yeah. the Oprah of his era, really. <laughs> um, and, but there's a lot of people like that. And I'm, you know, was trying to argue, trying to figure out why does this happen right here? And I think it has to do with the breakdown of the humoral, humoral physiology, which we talked about before and the introduction of mechanical theories that tried to explain why fat sticks to the body on some people and not on others. Um, and they were trying to think in chemical terms, strangely enough, which are not, not humoral terms at all. They were thinking there's this difference in the body chemistry. One um, particular author, an English, another English author, I think it's Thomas Short or William Short, Thomas Short, I think, said that, well, this is a matter of the saponins in your body. Some people do not have the ability to break down the fat so they're flushed out of the body. So he recommended that people eat soap. And the soap would be, you know, the lye would dissolve the fat in their body. <laughs> like, like, what the hell? So, did he, so did he get sued? I mean, losses were in that big. The 18th century. This is before yeah, the yeah. Um, yeah. And there's many different, you know, sort of in this thread of weight loss diets that begin early 18th century. There's George Shane, there's uh, Banting was very famous in the 19th century. In fact, to go Banting was a, is a verb to lose weight. So, oh, wow. so, but you don't see that in classical Greek or Roman or medieval or even Renaissance medicine at all. There's no, there's no sort of consistent weight loss diets that people are trying to sell people. But by the 19th century, they are there and they do not go away. And as you know, people want an easy pill. They yeah. want a, oh, Ozambic. They don't want to, you know, do anything. <laughs> that, you know, and, and partly, I think, in a way, we are a lot less sensitive about these issues than people were in the 16th century. When they in, said, in what sense? Oh, it, uh, you know, this is, this is the way you were born. It's this is your, we would say metabolism now. They didn't use that, but they didn't have a, they didn't fat shame. They didn't, they did not think of it that way at all. And by the time you get to the 18th century, there's like stories of fat people that, that are, they are gawking at this stuff. There's, there's this one, gosh, what was his name? Rabbi Eliezer, a rabbi who was apparently just so fat that people would go and see him and freak shows begin then. And it was just, just totally uh, something to point at so that you can feel morally superior and say, oh, that person oh. must be weak because look, they can't control their body size. And if they would just eat less and exercise more, and, and this is still there. I mean, you it's still there. Know. Yeah. And I think that there's a backlash against the sort of accept everyone for what size they come in because physicians want to, it's a business for them and they make money off of it. And they like to think that a thin body is a healthy body. Well, it's not true. That's just, just, fact not a fact at all there are plenty of people who are larger who are healthy and if you're thin you're not likely to survive uh, most serious diseases if you're fat and you have some, some excess nutrition there you are actually so so you know the you know i love when people say i'm i exercise every day and that's why i'm so healthy 
and look at these people with broken limbs and pulled tendons and all. That's not health. Of course it is. <laughs> they, they, they destroy their bodies in all sorts of very unhealthy ways. Um, um, so, so I, I, I want to understand something here, Dr. Albala. Um, you're going back to the 18th century and saying that people just like now wanted an easy pill. Let's let's focus on the term people, because obesity, being overweight, or using the word fat that is somewhat derogatory now, um, is a thing. And, and societies are dealing with this. You had child obesity, like they have surgeries, like, for example, in Saudi Arabia for obese children. Uh, Mexico is now dealing with this, and we've been dealing with this for several decades now. When you say people, the interest in losing weight, was it, did it apply to the masses or was it? So let's, let me throw something very interesting at you. So for most of human history, the few people who could afford to really be large were wealthy. They, they could afford as much huh. food as they want. They ate. Fat was a sign of wealth. And I would say even up into the 19th century, think of people like Taft, our president, right? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and that was just, you know, a sign of wealth. Wealthy people were big. That was okay. Um, the change came when the industrial food system provided food that was remarkably cheap. Anyone could eat as much as they want. And by the time you get to the mid-20th century and to the latter 20th century, the cheapest food, the junk food, was the most caloric, and the people in poverty tended to be obese more than people with a lot of money because they, because people with a lot of money said, "I'm going to diet. I'm going to eat sensibly. I'm not, fat is a sign of weakness and and immorality. Of course, I'm not going to go around with excess weight." And so it is flipped entirely. Yeah, obese people tend to be poor, and the wealthy people tend not to be. Totally bizarre, but it has to do with the availability of food and and the quality of the food. Of course, if you are wealthy, you can afford vegetables. They're expensive. They're not hard. To, they're most yeah. you know many places in the city you can't buy fresh fruits and vegetables. And and yeah. so eating well is a luxury. You know, we need to you know think that that you know when we say you know oh well just stop eating Doritos and eat brown rice instead it is never going to work. It's a stupid idea because. You know, people are not culturally attuned to eating that way. And what's available to them is at the corner grocery store is Doritos, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and many areas are food deserts, and it's not like right. they can go to a Whole Foods if they could afford a Whole Foods and then of course, eat that. That's exactly my point. Yeah. Um, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about food history after everything we've talked about, what would it be? Oh, just one item. Um, well, I think. Every, everyone eats. Everyone always has. It's the one thing you cannot do without. You can do without sex. You can do without sleep, too, a <laughs> lot. But, but food is one of those things that you can fast for a while, too, but you need food and water eventually. Yeah. You're gonna die. Um, so it's the one thing that is a great cross-cultural comparison, you know, tool of comparing people across time and space because people – Obviously, you have to make choices about food, the cost, the quality, the quantity, the social setting, the complexity of it. And it reveals, I think, much more about a person, a group, a society, a nation, whatever. It's more revealing than anything else. Um, 
because everyone has to do it. Um, yeah. And everyone makes choices about what they eat. So, you know, to go back to Brilliant Savaran, tell me what you eat and I will tell you what you are. It's not exactly you are what you eat, but it's, you said that at the very beginning, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but it's, it's, um, he means socially, psychologically, intellectually, culturally. Look at what a person eats. You will totally understand who that person is. That's true. That's true. Dr. Albala, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>